Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. And welcome to another edition of The Way with Anoa. I am your hostess with the mostest, Anoa Changa. And I'm really excited. I mean, I'm always excited because I always talk to really awesome, amazing people. Um, but I am talking with Preston Mitchum, who is extraordinary. And if you don't already know Preston, you need to follow Preston ASAP. And like I always say, when I tell y'all to follow somebody, don't be harassing them or be acting crazy <laughs> in the mentions. Because I'm going to disown you if you say Anoa sent me. Um, but, I mean, Preston is an attorney, a writer, a scholar, an organizer, um, you know, a loving, awesome, amazing uh, 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 brother to many. And I am, you know, a strategist. Like, there's just so many different things that Preston you can say, um, you know, more. <laughs> Listen, I'm just, making, I'm just, making me nervous now. <laughs> I'm just, I, I am really thankful. So today we are talking about, um, you know, we are on the, the heels of the anniversary of Freedom Summer, of the kickoff Freedom Summer of the, you know, today uh, we are recording on June 16th, which is the anniversary of the Soweto Youth Uprising in, in South Africa. I mean, we. This is Pride Month. Hey, hey, we're talking in the middle of pandemic and uprising, right? And you know what? I mean, particularly talking in Pride Month, and we're in the middle of uprisings. I mean, we can't not mention Stonewall. Um, so there, which also took place later this month. So, so many amazing things converging at this point, and amazing in varying ways. And so, I wanted to bring in someone who. I could chop it up with and have a great conversation. Um, and I hope you find it interesting as well. So Preston, thank you so much and welcome. Thank you, Anoa. I am I am so happy. You know, sometimes I always talk about when people read your bios, you're like, wow, am I that good? Like, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate I that. Mean, and, actually, and I'm actually doing that off memory. I mean, he's also, I mean, Preston is also, you know, one of the fine brothers at A5A. And if you went to hey. college with an alpha line or a few alpha lines on your campus, you already know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So. <laughs> Listen, we're here. We're here. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because, like, um, I think for a lot of us, our first, you know, memory of seeing or knowing alphas is probably the brothers. Um, you know, stepping in uh, 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 Spike Lee's school days, you know, ice, right. ice baby. Listen, listen. Ice, ice baby, the listen. rocket goes. <laughs> and, that, and that was my first memory too, honestly. So so I have to say it connects with me too. <laughs> but anyway, so again, thank you uh, for humoring me and thank you for joining us. Like I just really appreciate you in the way you constantly show up in spaces. And I think, Right now, we are definitely in a moment where it's so necessary to, like, have these conversations, but also 
to center folks in those conversations who are not just, I hate when we say doing the work, but honestly, you are across so many lanes doing the work. Can you just talk to me a little bit about, you know, your work and your background and, and this, this moment we're in, in terms sure. of uprising and pandemic? Yeah. Uh, so again, it's really it's really exciting to be here, and I've I've really appreciated your work. Um, and I remember directly when we connected, it was over definitely a, a friend, and we needed to to kind of mm-hmm. squat up to squat up. That's been uh, almost a year and a half that that is yeah, happening. It's yes. been squat ever since. <laughs> exactly. Um. So yeah. So it's funny. A lot of people. Um. A lot of people are very interested in my background when I tell them about it because I think some people just have no idea. Uh. And, and, and I can understand that too, right? So again, Preston Mitchum, I use he, him pronouns. And currently I am the director of policy at um, an organization called URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. Um, and so URGE is a national and multi-state driven organization that's really, uh, that's deeply rooted in young people's access to reproductive justice um, in the South and the Midwest. So specifically that's around abortion access, comprehensive sexuality education, uh, decriminalization, including sex work decriminalization, uh, I mean, you name it, if it connects reproductive justice, immigrant justice, et cetera, that is the work that we do. Again, specifically in the South and the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest, from Ohio. Um, something that people don't discuss oh, enough. Well, yeah, wait, listen. Where in Ohio are you from? From Youngstown, Ohio, raised in Dayton, Ohio. What? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people don't really talk about the connections that the the that Southern, like Southern folks have to the mm-hmm. Midwest. Other like outside of migration, right? But it, it's deeper than migration, right? There's there's so much connected blackness and queerness from the South and the Midwest that I just always have to shout out and give love to. Um, and so that is the work that I do on a day to day basis. Um, I also am an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown Law Center. Uh, I've been teaching LGBT health law and policy there for about three and a half years now, uh, which has been really great to just shape so many people and frankly challenge a lot of privileges that we see every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, of course, you know I. I've been in an organizing home for so many years. You know, I still consider my political home BYP 100, um, where I was really, really reshaped and refined. And my understanding on defunding the police about five, six years ago. Um, so I'm really excited to see the conversation of defunding the police take precedent now. But there have been so many people who've been doing that work for years. And so, um, you know, I always want to honor, you know, them and what they do. I'm particularly excited about being here because I always appreciate like black lawyers who who know that something is not okay just because it's the law, mm-hmm. right? And we really want to do deeper dives on actually shifting what the law is and what we know it to be and how it's actually harmed so many of us, right? Even though we have to use it to our advantage every once in a while, we know the history of the law and the history of policing, among other things, have harmed so many black women with an ex, queer and trans communities, um, and other people of color in the way we live our day-to-day lives. So that's a bit about me. Um, I'm also <laughs> always share these moments to say I'm also single. So if you are a black man who's queer, who's listening to this, just know, holla at your boy, right? Just holla at me anytime. This is also going to be a dating service too. So thank you, Anoa. I know you didn't know that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Like I, one thing I will say that I appreciate you appreciate about you so much is like even though we are in, and you're not the only one, but you are definitely one of the people I see. You know, Amber J. Phillips. Like there's several of you who I think do this well in terms of building in moments and glimpses of joy and abundance. And it's not just some, you know, imitation pose for the gram. 
it's like really at your ethos and core of how you move, operate, and just exist in space, right? And so I always appreciate the beautiful pictures you post. So if anyone is interested in single, <laughs> check out Preston because Preston is like fine and has dope pictures. It has a great sense of style. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You know, someone told me, I, I was actually on, on a, a show, a Facebook show the other day and someone said, you know, it's funny. Like I always thought you would be just like so buttoned up because you're a lawyer. I was like, what? No. They don't I'm know like, lawyers very well and they didn't, they exactly. didn't go to law school. Exactly. I'm like, because the lawyers that I know <laughs> turn up often, but I understand the the facade that many people put out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like we are, you, you mentioned, you touched on several different things and they're like, there's so much that's happened in the last three months since we've been in this pandemic quarantine phrase phase. There's been so much that's happened even just in the past few weeks and even just this last week with the, um, you know, the, the decision from the Trump administration to just, just I guess, deepen oppression, suppression of, you know, our trans folks, our trans family um, in regards to health care. Um, but then also, you know, we have everyone cheering about the recent decision from the Supreme Court. But then again, we're still in this moment of uprising, right? Um, right. And we have a pandemic that has laid bare the exacerbations, the differences along, um, you know, because of the, the the condition of racialized capitalism, right? What black and brown communities are really grappling and dealing with, whether we're talking about the disproportionate impact of um, COVID-19 on black communities and native indigenous communities, but as well as look, thinking about how workers across the board, but notably, you know, workers um, who, or families who are mixed status, um, or undocumented are not are doing and bearing the brunt of this in so many different fields, like the meatpacking industry, poultry industry, um, farm workers, but not receiving any of the support or benefits from the very limited financial assistance even that has come from the federal government. So I will kick it to you because that was a lot. But just thinking about like some of the top line issues in this moment, like how like how are you feeling or how are you seeing people show up to really like advocate and, and rethink the ideas of freedom and justice and liberation um, right now. Yeah, for sure. So that is a lot. And I think it's a good lot, though, because it, mm-hmm. it has it has definitely allowed me to the past few weeks has allowed me to to think about and to respond to how people are showing up for other people and how they're mm-hmm. actually actively working against some of the harm that's being done. So I'll take a step back by first start mentioning like, you know, three and a half months ago, many of us started experiencing COVID. Um, And, you know, even though it's become a global issue for a little bit of time, right, I would say at least within the confines of the United States, we've been seeing more, more, more fear of it and then higher, higher rates of COVID uh, since the beginning of March. And so, you know, the the thing is, you know, we already knew that Black people and, and frank, quite frankly, especially queer and trans people of color um, were already ex- experiencing pre-existing conditions. And it wasn't, pre- it, it, you know, we can't just say that without kind of honoring the reason why people have pre-existing conditions, right? It's not just because Black 
people aren't working out as much or it's not that because we're not eating healthier. Uh, there are actual like medical reasons why black um, black communities specifically um, have higher pre-existing conditions, um, right? Like food deserts. We could talk about like medical racism. We could talk about lack of access to healthcare. Uh, there, there are a litany of reasons why, right? So when we talk about like healthcare inequities and healthcare and access and what that actually means for communities, we already knew the past three and a half months were going to be, quite frankly, uh, life or death for many Black people. So then you compound that with what we're experiencing right now um, when it comes to to police brutality, right? We, we've experienced anti-Black police brutality for millennia. But there is something that feels particularly like worrisome and troublesome now because the way we ordinarily, Black folks, the way we ordinarily would commune is different, right? Because we're told we have to socially distance ourselves and Part of what that means is then we can't receive community and love in the same way that we ordinarily would deal with trauma. So not only are we like navigating trauma in a variety of ways, we're also figuring out how to navigate trauma on top of keeping our healthcare at the forefront, on top of actually battling police brutality and, and white supremacy um, that has abounded for so long. So there are so many things that are taking place that are at the root of what we're experiencing. And then on top of that, now we're entering into a movement where defunding the police is becoming like a rallying cry for so many people who've never heard of defunding the police before. So it's an opportunity to actually shape the discourse of what people want when they re-envision what public safety looks like, while at the same time allowing people who have been talking about this for years to lead that conversation and to not allow people like, academics to shift the language of something that they've never been a part of in the first place. Mm -hmm. So there are so many things happening. And I'll also add right now what's happening in the response we're seeing is, of course, you know, just yesterday around 10.02 a.m. Eastern time, we received a favorable decision at the Supreme Court level um, that actually shocked many people, you know, by a, by a decision of six to nine. Um, Justice Gorsuch wrote an opinion for the majority that stated that LGBTQ people cannot be discriminated against um, under Title VII, which is a healthcare um, protection under the 1964 Civil Rights Act um, that provides some level of workplace protections, but massive amounts for millions of people. Um, while at the same time we can celebrate that, right, there's been less of a conversation that the Supreme Court also rejected qualifying immunity cases that could actually help us figure out what police brutality looks like and holding police officers accountable if that actually, you know, were were uprooted. So, Anoa, there are so many things happening. And right. the thing that I'm really excited about the most um, is that there seems to be really this spirit of imagination happening. Um, you know, th this is not radical. And I really hate and pause to use the word radical and what people are discussing, because these are just things that people know that they need to live their life in the best way that they can live them. Right. Um, the fact that people think that housing should be, you know, free or just at least accessible is not really radical. It's <laughs> that people need a place to live so they won't be unhoused. The fact that people received a twelve hundred dollar check, one, which is low, mm -hmm. frankly, but, you know, it's not a radical concept for the government to actually be offering assistance for people to be able to live, right? Like, so the things that many people consider radical are things that we actually knew that our congressional leadership had the capability of doing all along, but did not do because they were needing, allegedly, political cover, right? People are wanting political cover while other folks are just actually trying to live and not die under the foot of capitalism, under the foot of racism, under the foot of misogynoir. Um, and so, again, while there are many powerful things happening, the one thing that I'm really happy with seeing is that the spirit of like love, light and liberation is abounding 
And I think we'll see that for a period of time because this is a movement, not a moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, thank you for for really breaking it down like that. And and like I like I said, it's like you said, it's a good lot. Um, but I kicked it to you because I figured you would have like a way to like really like break it down and bring it and bring it through. Like we, whew, child. what you just said about that just just thinking about the last part about like the mixture of response that we got in these cases from the supreme court i just you know we we have a history of supreme court you know having some decisions that seemingly come down on our side and 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 rightfully so in good reason we think about just how civil rights you know civil rights like became on the books anyway right and when we think about the contemporary rights that we enjoy um, you know, a notable exception right now is just the, the way we saw the gutting of um, the VRA back in 2013 right. with Shelby with Shelby v. Um, Shelby v. Holder. And I mean, we are in a moment. We're in an election. We're in an election cycle, um, and we have you know this this ongoing dialogue right now agitating around like necessary like more deep change and i don't even know if change is right the right word like dismantling of what we know to be a long-held systemic systemically racist white supremacist like system right or systems of institutions however people want to look at it and just thinking about the role of the supreme court over that time i mean we go back to cases like plessy v ferguson i mean there's so many like points but then there is this tension on like the both the necessity it seems like of having a quote unquote balanced Supreme Court that will that will that can at least understand the the legitimate issues and protections for people under this so-called democracy. But at the same time, there seems to be like a strategy on, you know, and I don't know if your experience or urge gets into any of this in terms of like having state level um, like even though you know the Supreme Court will make determinations based on constitutionality or you know federal question issues and things of that nature, but there are some things that seems like either we need a congressional response to enshrine and make sure. I mean, the Title VII case was based on Title VII, you know, of the Civil Rights Act, and not necessarily any type of like constitutionally protected, um, you know. Uh, I mean, it wasn't based on like any constitutional interpretation, right? So it seems like there are still things that either we need congressionally or at the state level in terms of protecting people's rights, protecting and ensuring freedoms, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about the fact that in so many states, you can, we have this decision, but you can still discriminate for pe- against people in housing um, in many states. Uh, I think right. back to like West Virginia is one of them. So we there are there are all these things that we're talking about and then when you when you noted the vulnerability often of you know black queer and trans people and then we talk specifically about black trans women and some of you know what we're what just a glimpse of what we're starting to see media wise like can you just talk to me about like strategically like on an organizational level like what more do we need beyond um yay supreme court decisions Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Because the the truth is, um, the Supreme Court is not going to save us, right? Like, mm-hmm. at, the end, at the end of the day, no no elected official, no nominee, no body of government can save people, especially marginalized communities, right? So, 
of course, we should always look to, I mean, the court system has saved us so much, frankly, when when state and federal governments have failed, right? So, and, and specifically the legislature. Um, so, yeah, there, there are so many times where the courts have intervened um, at, at the local level, at the district level, and of course, at the Supreme Court level to really help marginalized communities and specifically Black communities. And, and as we see, LGBTQ communities. Um, there's also times where it has blatantly failed to ignore um, intersectionality, right? And not just as like a buzzword. I mean, right, like I, we could talk about, you know, DeGraff and Reed, right? And we talk about like what that looks like when, you know, a Black woman was attempting to say that she was discriminated against on the basis of being both Black and woman. Um, mm-hmm. where the, where the court, where one of the courts obviously rejected that argument. Um, but I mean, even something deeper, right? So in 2013, you know, when you mentioned um, uh, the gutting of the VRA, you know, in, in, in 2013 in, in Shelby v. Holder. One of the things that actually happened that same year too, though, right? If people remember 2013, <laughs> it was marriage equality. So, you know, on one hand, you know, the Supreme Court completely recognized that LGBT people or lesbian and gay people, uh, more specifically, could, could marry a different, um, a same-sex partner. Um, while at the same time, you know, we were gutting people's ability to actually have access to the ballot box, which were some of the same communities. So, right. you know, it, it was just an interesting thing. You know, the next, you know, that same year, actually, we were pushing for um, the House of Representatives to pass the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. The Senate okay. passed it, but then it failed in the House Rules Committee. So okay. you still then had a history of, of, of the court system coupled with the legislative body actually saying, you know what, actually, you know, we're going to give you an inch, but the second you start to think you deserve a mile, we're going to strip it away. And so, though I think we can acknowledge, right, the, the efforts that have been made, again, at multiple levels, um, especially at the, at the judicial level, just how powerful, you know, we, we that those that branch is and that that government is but we also have to acknowledge that there's still more work to be done so what can be done so one of the things of course that can be done is actually still um you know reverting and being active at the state level so part of the work that we do at urge of course really is on federal and state strategies uh some of those strategies are well i i would venture to say <laughs> all the strategies that we come up with are great uh but of course that's not necessarily true and uh you know but one thing that is true is that we can't do any of those strategies without people on the ground so that is you know the where where most of these plans fail is when their grass tops approaches and so you know when they are actually like driven by policy folks who are, you know, maybe at 30,000 foot, not really responding to the needs of people on the ground, we oftentimes see see our strategies failing. And, and that's we that's a that's a capital, you know, capital W we, right? Like that's not urge. That is like actually like, you know, these nonprofit organizations that are doing this work, the work cannot be done in a vacuum and it certainly cannot be done with the policy folks leading that work. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be done by the folks on the ground who are actually like leading that work. They're responding to the needs that they that they actually want and need in their life. And they're actually working with the policy folks in an integrated way. So policy people and folks who work specifically in advocacy, you know, and who are Black lawyers, among others, must work with the people on the ground. So that, to me, that is like the overarching, like, you know, goal when it comes to any kind of strategy or any kind of ways to respond. Um, the other thing about what, I, you know, what I really actively see as ways to respond, you know, I will say this. Again, we, we talked about defunding the police a little bit. But one of the ways that we really actually have to have to see the work happening, we see it in D.C., we saw it so far in San Francisco, we're, and we're seeing it pop up, frankly, in, 
and even in Austin, actually. So in different places, we're seeing it popped up, right? What does it actually mean to defund the police? What does it actually mean to reinvest that money back in communities, um, right? What does it mean to actually reinvest it back in schools and healthcare and, you know, uh, and, and youth services and mental health services? Um, and so I think that is like a big thing that we really need to focus on again is like, Yes, we need the court levels. We need the court system. Um, and we must always push them to be more progressive, to be better. Um, and at the same time, acknowledge that they're not always going to. And many times they won't. Um, and so what then does that mean, right? That means we have to continue to build community. That means we have to still continue grassroots advocacy. And that means we must meet people at the intersection of, one, mass mobilization, and then, two, policy change. And I think that's the only way we can actually see some significant steps towards progress. Hmm. I love that. Meet people at the intersection of mass mobilization and policy change. I, I really, I mean, because I really feel like that's what we're seeing right now, right? Like, we had a lot of spontaneous um, responses to um, just seeing our, 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 our folks out in the street in Minneapolis. We've had um, spontaneous responses. Some of it's becoming a more, like, concerted, organized effort. But, I mean, for almost three weeks now, nationwide, there have been some form of ongoing protest. And we're now mm-hmm. seeing a lot of folks shift those demands specifically as, um, you know, whether state level or municipalities are starting to try and respond to people. We're seeing, like, multiple cities have either their city councils or other elected officials, like, really saying, hey, we need to do something or trying to respond or we have, um, in the case of Atlanta, we have organizers showing up and like, look, you better, you go and respond. And this is what we about to do. So we didn't talk that much about defund the police already. But like, just thinking about first, this whole conversation that almost seems like, or no, it does seem like it's an intentional attempt to undermine and distract from the very clear language of defund the police. Like, so can you just talk to me a little bit about like what we're seeing with folks trying to hijack what has been clear messaging, not just the past three weeks, but like ongoing for quite some time about what defund actually does mean and how it it represents, how it would play out ideally in our communities. For sure. So, you know, so I'll start by saying that it's been really fascinating the past three weeks, at least, um, seeing people who have never, and, and let me say this, I'm going to specifically say naysayers mm-hmm. who have never um, talked about defunding or who have never, or even like even divesting, if you want to use that word, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or reallocation of resources, right? Like whatever word that people are now attempting to make more palatable or salient, they, I have never seen so many naysayers talk about it in this way, um, which is interesting because we knew what defunding meant when we were attempting to, you know, corral conservatives against defunding Planned Parenthood. We knew what defunding meant, right, when people have defunded Medicare, Medicaid, mm-hmm. Head Start, among others. So the problem is not that people, naysayers, don't understand defunding. Quite frankly, it is because they're cognitively dissonant to the fact mm-hmm. that they know they actually don't agree with it. And they just don't want to name themselves as not agreeing with it because some of them call themselves progressives. 
So, you know, the truth is what, defund, you know, that we need to be very clear about what defunding is, right? It is more, it is more than a reallocation of resources. It is actually stripping power from the police at the local, state, federal, et cetera, levels to put power in the hands of the people, right? Yes, we know, yes. Anoa, are you there? I'm here. I just okay. asked you for a few seconds. You said stripping power. Last thing you said was stripping power. From yes. Federal, so, state and local law enforcement right like it is it is deep it is deeper than just a reallocation of resources it is actually envisioning a world without police it is actually figuring out what bystander intervention means or other supportive services actually mean it means figuring out what to do right how to actually be like fund services that will prevent violence from occurring that that dissipates the need for the police in the first place it is from removing power from the hands of law enforcement and actually putting it in school districts. It is removing money from law enforcement and putting it in the hands of youth services and young people. It is removing law enforcement and putting it in the hands of communities that need housing and health care and employment. Right. There, there are many things that we can do with the money that police at the especially at the local and state level get. Right. Think about it. In D.C., the D.C. budget for the Metropolitan Police Department is half a billion dollars, $500 million. And the mayor, current current mayor, Mayor Bowser, Muriel Bowser, has proposed, like her most recent proposal to the D.C. City Council was an $18.5 million increase. Sometimes when I do trainings on what safety looks like, I have asked people to close their eyes and pretend they've had $500 million. Like, just close your eyes. In a perfect world, what do you need? What would you invest this money in to make you feel safe? Mm-hmm. People, people have told me mental health services. People have told me access to a doctor and a dentist. People have told me education. People have told me everything under the sun except for more law enforcement or any at all. And so, you know, it's really important to think if we know that even in our own, right, like ideal or utopia or whatever word we're going to use that people don't like think of police as a safety mechanism, then why do we need them? And when you talk to people about this, people feel like they need them because they have never and we have never had a world without police. And when you talk to people more about what policing looks like in their own communities, again, I can give an example of D.C. since that's where I am, you know, in wards seven and eight, which are the poor areas in D.C., which are the high, like the the blackest areas of D.C. also, um, not ironically, actually, because we know how government actually operates Mm -hmm. at the intersection of class and race. We see that there are more policing there. And then you'll hear some people in those communities, you know, Bless them who I love, right? Because they're they're black folks, you know, will say we need more police here because violence keep happening. Right. But but the interesting thing is is violence keeps happening and we keep seeing police. That means that we know police are not solving violence from occurring. So again, when we then when we then actually see that we put more money, more investments, et cetera, into something like law enforcement, and then we still see crimes increase, that means we're not really getting to the root, which is people need resources. The other day, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez said something that I always think about so much, 
white communities and affluent white communities in particular do not have a lot of police in their communities. And then people always want to say, well, see, they don't have high crime rates. Yes, because they have resources. So the things that, that many people commit acts of quote unquote crime on are mostly crimes of poverty. They're mostly crimes of survival. So if we know that people are actually like they actually need resources, the question then becomes, why are we not actually investing in the things that people need? And it's because we have an attachment to law enforcement and because we have an attachment to thinking that law enforcement will actually uproot violence and uproot the problems when we know they actually perpetuate and exacerbate those problems and that violence, which is exactly why the second highest rate of sexual violence we know statistically is from law enforcement officials. And so again, we just have to be very clear about what defunding is. The goal of defunding is literally to defund police budgets to zero dollars. People don't want to say that. People are afraid to say that because it doesn't sound sexy. (laughs) It's not palatable, right? But at the end of the day, we know that we don't need police because they haven't directly made our life or indirectly made our lives safer. So again, we have to keep, you know, drumming that beat. We have to keep making that message clear that it's not just about a mere reallocation of resources. That's a start maybe. But the goal, the goal is to get to abolition. The goal is to defund the police in zero dollars to make them non-existent. The goal is to fund resources, excuse me, to provide resources to communities. The goal is to repeal laws that criminalize, criminalize survival. The goal is to house unhoused people, right? Like these are all the goals that we need. And so, you know, while defunding may be the mantra right now, the clear goal is to get to abolition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, and there definitely seems to be a mindset, a culture or a comfort or a, I'm not sure exactly a political, not just a political uh, a stance or investment in the status quo, but there definitely does seem to be something that's like invested in, you know, pushing this narrative that this is bad timing, this is bad messaging, this is going to cost Democrats the election without really understanding that it is not the role or job of Black people who are organizing and trying to build and demand what is necessary for freedom, justice, liberation, and just just living, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, we, we talk about Black Lives Matter when people die. We, as in, like, everyone who is super emotional and suddenly so radical and woke right now, but we are rarely looking at, honestly, what does it mean to respect, support, love, and lift up Black lives while we are living and breathing it, in this yes. world, right? Yes. Um, so what do you, I mean, I'm just curious, like, your thoughts to, like, those people, like, who are definitely among the naysayers or, or really the ones pushing this, like, narrative and idea. And I, and I, and I, and I separate out people who, like you, like you were also correctly stating, our, you know, our community members could be our elders or other family members that be based on their experiences, their socialization, they do or have had experiences and want to feel safe. And we have not had this process of visioning something different. I mean, we talk a lot about in movement about like alternative structures and stuff, but our folks in many instances don't get the opportunity to sit in conversations like we do and vision and plan and daydream about what things could look like and so that is definitely it seems like part of like the challenge and organizing so i don't mean our folks who for them this is something that does not sound right or they're 
also just getting whatever mainstream talking points they're getting and not taking the time to read, listen to, um, engage with the numerous explainers, videos, training materials, all the stuff that already exists, right? I mean, when you when you said divest, I mean, whether it's defund, divest, uh, folks definitely should remember, um, if you're old enough, uh, you know, the, the, the long push in terms of divesting from South Africa, which mm-hmm. was not necessarily a popular thing in certain mainstream circles, including amongst Black political elites. To some extent, um, I think about the episode, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, <laughs> but I think about the episode of A Different World where um, the character Kim, there's, a, you know, they have South African exchange students there, and they're talking about this really great scholarship that um, Kim got, and it's from this company called Orange Glow or Orange Globe or something like that. And ultimately, they're a company that had not divested from South Africa, but Kim is, you know, from a working class family and she really needed that money because she wants to go to medical school and that tension but like that was actually part of the plot in um school days to go back to school days again um you know that's part of the plot you know that played by Lawrence Fishburne and his crew were pushing for their fictitious HBCU to join and embrace the divestment movement right so we're in a similar type of conversation where people are, are connected to institutions because they have provided them with, you know, opportunities and resources. And I'm not necessarily saying that people are bad people, but they're most definitely prioritizing other things than what is in the best interest of our actual communities. So I was just curious your thoughts, because I've inadvertently shared mine, um, <laughs> about like these, you know, this framing from folks who are in the political know and in the political arena who are, you know, distorting or distracting or almost trying to blame movement uh, in the event Trump were to win um, in, in, in November. Let me, I, it's so hard for me to even pay those people any mind. I, <laughs> you know, and, and I think I think that it reminds me of, a, I'm a, you know, to paraphrase something Angela Davis said, or I'm like, not a, I'm not trying to build with every black person to liberation. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I have fully recognized that every we're not all going to be on the same page. And ultimately, my goal is not to get people to agree with me. Certainly, it is to shift culture. Right. Certainly, it's to make sure that we are more progressive, more liberatory, among other things. But my goal is to provide people with as much information as possible, even if it makes you frustrated, if it makes you think differently, or if it makes you think think beyond what you ordinarily would think. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether we agree, very different. And so, you know, I've been seeing so many things now lately around like, you know, now we're going to lose. And I'm like, y'all, if we have a pandemic happening, if we have, you know, the president not responding to, to police brutality happening, if we have like now, you know, just most recently him saying there was an AIDS vaccine. If we have someone like this saying all these outlandish things and continuation of harm, stripping, you know, healthcare rights for, for LGBTQ mm-hmm. people, and he still wins, then it's not the movement's fault. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, 
there there are many people you can blame, right? There are you can blame people who who just blame people for not voting. You can you can blame people who aren't you know out there actually activating people to register to vote, or you know you can blame many people. But the fact that people blame folks in the movement or blame defunding the police is a cop out, and it's something that they were gonna do regardless of whether right. you know if if if, 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 if if this if this never became a national thing, the movement would have been blamed in the first place. People who didn't vote would have been blamed in the first place, right? right. It is easy to do that shift than it is to accept the fact that we are just not putting up the best candidates to go against particular conservatives. Like that is that that's actually the beginning and the end of the story for me. I, however, you know, so so not however, I would say I am not shocked by what I've seen with people saying, like, you know, it's gonna be our fault. I actually expected it. Um, but the one thing that 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 still rings truth to me regardless of, of whether we're blamed for that or not, is like, what are we actively going to do if he actually is elected, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so often mm-hmm. we spend so much time focusing on the fact that people need to vote for Biden that we actually have not gotten to a conversation of, well, what if they don't, right? Like, mm-hmm. sure, like, this has been a horrible four years as we know it. And yeah, I absolutely believe that Biden would be much better. Like, you know, that's just my my personal and philosophical views. But I also think Biden is a violent candidate. And I also think he's mm. a candidate that has troubled and racist history and a misogynistic history and a history of being a sexual, someone who's committed sexual assault. So, you know, there, there, the, there are things that are both and. And, you know, so the people who actually can only focus on this idea of like, defunding the police being something that's not good for people. Um, you know, I also still haven't heard those same people propose what safety mechanisms should actually be in place to protect us. Because right. we, you know, if we're in the streets protesting against the police, right, then we obviously know there's an issue with policing and law enforcement, right? So these are some of the same people who are now saying defunding is not the answer. So what is the answer? The answer cannot be actually training people to be less racist, <laughs> Like, that surely can't be the answer because when you do things like implicit bias trainings, you actually don't unpack your racism. You just learn why you racist. <laughs> like, it doesn't actually force you <laughs> to be less racist, right? Like, you know, just like implicit bias trainings haven't forced corporations to hire more Black people. Like, you know, mm-hmm. these, are, these are not the things that we need. Reform does not work. It has never worked. It didn't work in education, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, we, we have a of what we know reform will and won't do. We know it will not shape, we know it will not shape the lives of for Black people to be better because we know that police are actually like protected. They're insulated in many ways. And so, you know, having multiple trainings, providing more money to police forces are not the thing that's going to help us out. So while I will always commune and be in conversations with Black people, you know, of all experiences of life, you know, especially our elders, um, and, you know, and, and queer trans folks and many people, the one thing that I deeply still believe is true is that we do not believe police. And there are going to be some Black folks who disagree with that. And I deeply believe they are wrong, right? And because we've been working on reform for about 50 years now, realistically, right? We've been working on some measure of police reform, right? In, in the sense that as we know it today for the past 40 or so years, so again, we know we know it won't work. And I think, you know, I'm realizing my job is to build with black people and other people who already understand that, you know, and who's just trying to get into a better place of how to message it, right? My mm-hmm. goal is not 
to, to get people who frankly are infatuated with law enforcement in a way <laughs> to, to get them to agree with me, right? Because I just know that's not a good use of my time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I I appreciate what you were saying and about, like, also, um, this quick question about the Angela Davis reference. Was that from Sunday School? Which I completely missed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, something else, or, or did she say that someplace else? Because I've seen people referencing, like, something she said recently. So I was just curious. Or if it was yeah. something else that you saw her say. You know, I know I, I saw it recently and I really just can't. But you know what? I can't remember if it was like a newer thing or an older thing because she's been so many places now, too. She's been so many places and she's been on point as per usual. Listen, Mama um, is working and has been getting us to understand for years. So yes. more power and grace to her always. Yes, 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 yes. But but just like just thinking about what you were saying and we're, you know, we're ahead of Juneteenth or Juneteenth is this week and there is the 619 um, weekend of action that is happening with the movement for Black Lives. You have Trump has uh, moved his uh, planned rally, um, you know, from Juneteenth, allegedly per let him tell it because he cares about Black people. But um, for those, I'm sure pretty much everyone has saw this, but for those who may not be aware, President Trump originally plans having his back, you know, back to the base rally, so to speak, on um, June 19th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is, um, <laughs> uh, was not a coincidence. It was not right. an accident, no matter what they say. I mean, for folks not familiar with Tulsa, whether you, or if you just learned about Tulsa from watching The Watchmen last year, um, you know, Tulsa was the site of one of, won't say the, but one of um, the deadliest and destructive, you know, white supremacy massacres you know, I would say just in the 20th century, right? Because mm-hmm. there are so many to pick and choose from um, in our history. Uh, and and only now is it really even being discussed, rightfully. I've seen so many people comment about how they never learned about Tulsa in school. I actually don't think I learned about Tulsa in school, but I learned Black history from my parents at home. Um, yep. I think for a lot Same. of us, Either we had parents doing double duty of making sure we learned our history at home or we learned it, some of it, um, exploring Black studies classes in college. Um, and I'm sure most of our white you know, allies and comrades did not step in into an African-American studies class. Um, but <laughs> no, no shade. I'm just sure that's the reality. But just thinking about, you know, everything in this election cycle and, you know, it seems like almost Juneteenth. I did not grow up um, where Juneteenth was like a big celebratory thing, but like it's definitely become more present in my um, awareness and celebration. Like my kids are like, are we doing something? Are we celebrating what's happening for Juneteenth? And I was like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Um, You know, can you just talk to me just a little bit as we, you know, start to wrap up our conversation about like liberation and freedom and what it even still mean what it even means to us 155 years post the end of you know the civil war and um you know almost 155 years since the ratification of the 13th amendment like we're still grappling with so many issues around freedom justice liberation and just even just those beautiful words in the preamble to the constitution let alone the promises of the constitution and american democracy 
Um, so can you just talk to me a little bit about like putting that in the 21st century context in these multiple battles that we are mm-hmm. at the intersection of? Yeah. So that that's such a powerful moment. And I think, you know, this is so fitting for Juneteenth, right? We know, you know, it, it is a commemoration. Um, if we can really say that, frankly, um, mm-hmm. but, 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 you know, it, it, in many ways, it's a commemoration um, for, for and of the emancipation of enslaved people in the U.S. That was really, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Texas, um, being the final state um, to emancipate um, um, enslaved Africans or newly freed. Um, and I, I'm thinking, actually, because I, I, I sit sometimes with Juneteenth every every year because I learned about Juneteenth when I was younger through my family. And you're right, I, I did not learn of this when I was in school. Uh, you know, and I went to all Black schools my whole life up until college. Mm-hmm. Um and the it's just interesting because I think Black people, as Black people, we have so much work to do. And, you know, I hate that that labor squarely falls on us. And it's oftentimes yeah. blamed on us for not knowing certain things right. when it's really rooted in, like, you know, white supremacist education systems. And, again, ties back to lack of resources, among other things. And, you know, so, so on one, so again, one, you know, I, it, it would be really hard for me to, to bemoan or be upset with Black folks for not understanding mm-hmm. Juneteenth. But once we do understand it, right, we see so many connections with how things are actually happening right now. Um, so when we think about Juneteenth, we think about liberation, we think about freedom. And, you know, we, we don't live in a world where Black people are, are free, you know, and I think we're getting to, I think we're trying to get to being more liberatory and liberated, uh, but we certainly are not there yet. And, you know, part of what I think, you know, I, I keep going back to defund the police because I really deeply think that the purpose ultimately of defunding the police is getting us to a world of safety, of dignity, and of freedom. Um, Getting us to a world where we actually intervene before violence occurs. Getting to a world where people actually can, can eat, are not hungry, are housed, are healthy, right? Can get abortion access when they need to, can get prenatal treatment when they need to. Um, right. This is the world that I envision for black people. Right. And and I know I'm not alone in that thinking, you know, I, I uh, but but one of the things that I think about also Juneteenth and what that means is for us to just re-envision what a life looks like for us. Like, can you imagine what what the world we would live in if we actually just been able to call one of our family members and know that they're just going to like wake up and be fed? Or if we can actually contact one of our siblings and know that there won't be any pregnancy complications or to know that when we walked outside, we actually were not choking on the air we were breathing right. or knowing that we could turn on the faucet and that our water would not be browned. Um, I, there, there are so many things that I think about, like the, the experiences of Black people in this country, because it is not, it, it's not, it's not ours, right? Like it is not ours in the sense that it is not our fault that we see like these massive, massive, like systemic issues happening, right? We know whose fault it is. We know what it's rooted in. And yet we bear the biggest brunt of it and the biggest blame for it. And that is the world that I I cannot imagine possible, right? That is the world I don't want to imagine any like possible anymore. And that is not what Juneteenth means, right? Juneteenth means like understanding that that is the world for many of us that we're experiencing and know that many of us are capable of ensuring that we can upend and uproot all of that from happening for future generations to come. 
So, you know, again, when I think about Juneteenth, it's something that is like deeply, deeply personal, not just because I'm black and not just because you're black, but because we know the work that we do expands beyond black people. Right. I always share people. About, like, the reason why I'm an abolitionist is not so white people can get out of jail. Right. And be arrested. It is for black people, too. And if white people also benefit from that, so be it. Right. And so that is that is just the world I want to see. And that is what I think Juneteenth inspires us to see every day, a world that allows us to be safe, free and liberatory. And that can only deeply happen when we know that we are not the reasons why all this system impacts are happening against our lives. But we are definitely, you know, going to make that change happen. And and frankly, it really should be white people making that happen. But but we know it's not going to happen. And so, you know, that's <laughs> We gotta we gotta look out and live out for community every single day. Mm, mm. We gotta look out and live out for community every single day. That was fire. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you. Any final thoughts on top of that just awesome closing comments? Any final thoughts or the comments that you just would like to bless us with? In addition to my promo for this episode is y'all, if you are you know, uh, 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 you know, healthy, awesome black man, Preston, single <laughs> and looking. <laughs> yes, yes, both. Well, as, both good, well as good looking. So, I mean, if you're if you're if you're superficial like me and care about this, <laughs> listen, listen. We, we, I mean, frankly, we all should, but you know, I, <laughs> I will, I will say, you know, we all have different standards for different things, and I appreciate that too. <laughs> But no, seriously, love, like any final thoughts as we wrap up this conversation. And thank you again. I really appreciate you. Of course. No, this has been, this has been beautiful. Like this conversation, you know, sometimes you have conversations that actually really inspire you. And I think this was definitely one of them. I just appreciate you for, for creating this space, right? Like I, I, it's really hard to have like an open conversation, you know, Mm -hmm. about the things that you deeply care about. I was, I was sharing with a couple of friends. I'm like, you know what? Before Twitter, I felt like I had lost my mind. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I literally felt there were moments where I'm just like, it, it can't just be me. <laughs> like, I'm like, it cannot just be me thinking this way. And Twitter allowed me to experience other Black folks who have probably lost their minds together. And, you know... It, I it, love it, that way of thinking about it. Twitter allows yeah. me to experience... <laughs> Listen, I love it. Go ahead. And, and and I think like you were one of those people that I was happy to lose my mind with. And, oh, and yeah. And so, no, I don't have anything additional to add other than just like thanking you for being just your beautiful, brilliant self, because, you know, I, I, I deeply look at a lot of the work that you're doing and you're making so much like shit. Hope I can say that happen. Yes, <laughs> and- have, I, I have the explicit label on for okay. a reason. <laughs> okay, I feel like we need to be able to show up and express ourselves fully and completely. And um, yes, I yes. mean, you know, there are some of us who occasionally drop, you know, some curses here or there just because <laughs> that's how we're feeling in the moment. Exactly. That's how it comes up. So yes, you make so much good shit happen. And and I, I just deeply appreciate it. And I don't want you to ever think that your hard work is, is, is going unnoticed. So thank you so much. And I'm really happy I could join you today. Absolutely. Thank you. Again, y'all, like we are recording. We had recorded this conversation on June 16th. But this is our Juneteenth conversation. I've been joined by Preston Mitchum, who is a lawyer, 
writer, extraordinary person. And I just thought of more things to follow with Preston about because of the journalism lane too, but um, you know, links and ways to follow Preston and find out more are in the description for this episode. Again, my disclaimer, don't go harassing my friend in the mentions <laughs> on social media and be like, well, Anoa sent me because I will, I will block or meet you. I will. Don't, don't be harassing people. I tell y'all to, to, to follow. But anyway, appreciate you so much, Preston, and appreciate y'all for tuning in to this edition of The Way of Fanoa. Um, we're out. Peace.